but it's okay. Because I still made the podium, amen? All right. <laughs> uh, you know, I had planned to go to the battlefields at Yorktown to watch the fireworks, but everybody told me that I wasn't going to get there because I went, was going to go too late. But I, just, I love the Revolutionary War, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about that today okay. as it relates to our lesson. But I really am grateful to be able to be in Yorktown. In fact, uh, I've read three books on George Washington, uh, 1776, George Washington's War, and a book I'm currently reading called Being George Washington. And uh, it's super inspiring to really think about... In fact, reading this book here is the one that made me go, you know, I think I want to live in Yorktown. So, so that's one of my motivations to move into Yorktown, so I'm excited. But uh, anyway, well, we've talked enough about this. Let's go ahead and pray and let's get into it. Amen? God, I want to thank you for your incredible love, for your patience, for your kindness. God, for the way that you never treat us as our sins deserve. Thank you, God, that we get a chance to uh, worship you as we desire in this country, God, that you've given us freedoms, uh, that we've had people who fought before us, and God, that we have you fighting for us spiritually. And God, without you, we are nothing. And I pray that as I uh, deliver this lesson today, God, that you will take me out of the way, that this lesson will be a demonstration of your spirit's power, and that you will get all the glory and you will get all the honor. I love you. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On August 14th in 1781, George Washington and his generals gathered together 3,000 Continental troops and 4,000 French troops to march from White Plains, New York to Yorktown, Virginia to stage a surprise attack on the British troops. The march promised to be long, hot, and humid. Wow. We all understand that, don't we? Yeah. By the time they would arrive in Yorktown, their ranks would swell to 17,000 soldiers, all of whom desired to engage in this surprise attack on Cornwallis and his 8,000 ill-prepared British troops. Meanwhile, our French allies under the command of Admiral de Grassy had set sail from the West Indies and arrived in Yorktown on August 30th, 1871, with 29 warships and 3,000 men to support the colonists. The British royal fleet of warships had no idea what they were about to face when they arrived in Yorktown. Six days later, on September 5th, when Admiral Graves of the British royal fleet arrived, they were greeted by the French Admiral de Grassy and 29 warships. The French fleet opened fire, sinking one British ship and damaging many others. Over the next few days, the British fleet was forced to retreat to New York in order to repair their ships. The British General Cornwallis could hear the sounds of cannon fire echoing over the water. The moment the French battleships had arrived in Yorktown, that meant the French had allied with the colonists and Washington and his army would soon be coming. Now is September 28, 1781. The last two weeks had been pure hell. General Cornwallis waited anxiously for what he knew was coming. He sometimes stared at the horizon for so long that his eyes would play tricks on him. On more than one occasion, he had summoned his lieutenant, his lieutenant to look through his spyglass and confirm his sighting of Washington's troops, only to be informed that there was nothing there. But on this day, his eyes did not deceive him. Thousands of troops appeared on the northern horizon. Hundreds more appeared across the Yorktown River 
at Gloucester Point. General Washington stood on a small embankment on the south side of the city. 17,000 men lay at his disposal. Whether French or Continental, all of them were waiting to charge at his command. Isn't that inspiring? You know, oh, it's incredible. You know, why, why didn't someone teach me this earlier? Why didn't I learn this in high school? But it fires me up. And I get goosebumps thinking about just what an intense situation this was. By October 14th, only two weeks into the battle, the battle was already winding down. And, and General Washington said, look, this, we're, in the, we're in the last few days of this thing. It's not going to last much longer. We are going to destroy them. I mean, it was pretty, uh, pretty amazing experience. By October 20th, two nights later, in sheer desperation, Cornwallis attempted to lead an evacuation across the York River in whatever small boats he could muster. Apparently, God did not intend to let him go so easily as a violent storm appeared out of nowhere. In a rush of ferocious wind and rain, the small British boats were swept downstream. The next morning, the Allies continued raining down an unending hail of bombs and cannonballs. Relentless, without mercy. It was noise and fear and death from every angle. The British soldiers cowered in fear and death from every angle. The British soldiers cowered any place of refuge they could find. Along with their decimated stone walls in every trench under log or tree. There was nothing they could do to stop the Allied forces. Most of the British troops had only one hope left. That somehow they might live. Sometime later that morning, Cornwallis shot the last of his ammunition. An eerie quiet settled over the British lines. You could almost hear men breathing, at least the ones who were still able to do so. About the same time as the white flag was being raised in Yorktown, the proud British fleet finally sailed back from New York after repairing their ships in the harbor. The repairs to their ships that had been inflicted were now taken care of, but it lasted two weeks longer than they expected. The fleet arrived at Yorktown one week too late. Wow. Isn't that intense? Isn't that intense? You know, whenever you look at American history, especially the Revolutionary War, what you can see is God working in so many different situations. It's one of the reasons why the Revolutionary War is very inspiring to me and why I've studied it out for years. Because I just see God clearly working. I see God moving. And even this situation, you know, Cornwallis is like, you know, let's get out of here. Let's take off. Let's sneak away. God's like, hmm, now, that ain't happening. Let me send a little rain, a little storms. I mean, the whole thing is just incredible. But you know, when we look at this, And we see what happened. You know, it's pretty crazy because the British General Cornwallis was known for his illustrious career. He was described by many as a distinguished, imposing, handsome, and yet prideful to the core man. He believed the camp that he had set up in Yorktown was perfectly defensible and was confident that George Washington, if he was ever going to defeat him, would certainly not defeat him at Yorktown. In the end, the British could not stand up against the Patriots' greatest weapons. The fact that God seemed to be fighting for them and the fact that the Patriots were willing to risk everything because of their intense desire for freedom. Bottom line, Cornwallis was not ready when George Washington surprised him. 
with 17,000 men and 29 French warships in the Battle of Yorktown. Literally, for him, it was a shocker. He did not see it coming. Cornwallis thought he could rely on his illustrious career and his past victories. He thought he had prepared adequately to defend Yorktown. He thought he could rely on his British fleet of ships to send him a continuous supply of food and fresh soldiers to keep the fight going. He thought that we had no ships, and in reality, we did not. But because of our allies, the French, 29 ships came into the port and completely shocked him. He was unaware of how powerful and supportive our French allies were. He had no idea what type of odds he was up against. And by the time he figured it out, it was too late. He even tried to escape, but we know the weather stopped him from getting away because there was no escaping because he needed to surrender. You know, there will come a day when Jesus comes. Nobody knows the day. Nobody knows. But we will all have to be like Cornwallis. We will all have to surrender. Luke 12, 40 says, You must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. It's not going to matter how distinguished, imposing, or handsome you are on the outside. You will have to humble yourself and bow before God and surrender. All of us will. Philippians 2, 10 through 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth before me. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Truth is, we can bow now or we can bow later. We will have to surrender at some point in our life. We will have to surrender. Jesus tells us plainly in these 16 verses that I'm about to read in, in Luke 17. He tells us plainly that we got to get ready. <laughs> that we got to get ready. The title of my lesson today and my only point is Get Ready to See Jesus. Get ready to see Jesus. Matthew 17, verse 22. Let's go ahead and read it together. To give you a little backdrop of what's going on, Jesus here is talking about the kingdom of God. And he's talking about this coming kingdom. And he's trying to communicate to the Pharisees, but also to his disciples, kind of what's going on and what's happening about the kingdom of God. And in verse 22, we pick it up and it says, Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, There he is, or here he is. Do not go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who was on the roof of his house 
with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. Amen. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two persons will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together and one will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. This is an intense passage, isn't it? This is an intense passage. When you think about it, you know, it's, it's like, wow, what is it? Wow, Jesus is so radical in his teaching, isn't he? He's so radical. He's, he's, he's just not afraid in any way, shape, or form to just say it how it is. When I first came to this church, I was so blown away because I saw the minister preaching and I saw veins popping out of his neck. And I, this guy's totally going for it. And I was like, what? Where am I? And I thought, well, this guy could have done anything with his life. Why is he a minister? And I thought, what a waste of talent. That was my thought when I first came to church. After him and I spent some time together, I realized, oh, now I understand. Now I understand why he wants to preach the word because the Bible is so amazing. It's so inspiring. Seeing Jesus and understanding Jesus and learning about his teachings, man, it only makes you go, God, he's awesome. So incredible. So inspiring. Matthew 17, verse 22 through 25, basically Jesus warned his disciples not to get caught up trying to figure out when the Son of Man would come. That they didn't prepare to get ready for when he actually arrived. So many people talk about the end times prophecy. It's like a million, probably a billion dollar industry. All kinds of books. Most of them are so far off that it's not even funny. And it's scary. You know, my brother... He's about four years old, younger than me. And uh, every once in a while, he'll call me. And he'll be like, I'm scared. And I'm like, what are you scared about? The end times. Jesus is going to come. And I'm not ready. And I go, well, let's get together and study the Bible. And somehow, you know, I've been a disciple since 1989. Somehow he's never found the time to get with me. But every once in a while, he'll call me scared. Because he heard something about the end times and he heard some biblical prophecy thing. And I said, look, most of what you're hearing is really skewed. It's not accurate. But if we can get in the Bible, I can teach you the things you need to know so that you can be ready and don't have to worry about all that stuff. Because that's not the point. Oh, when's he going to come? All these people have made these prophecies about when he's going to come. None of them have come true because nobody knows. Nobody knows. We got to focus on living for Jesus today. You got to focus on your desire. How is your desire to live for Jesus today? You know, the point that I said I want to talk about is get ready. Get ready. You know, Jesus uses the next seven reasons or illustrations from daily life and history to make this point. Okay, so he uses about seven illustrations here to try to help us get this one point that we got to get ready because Jesus is coming soon. Okay. He is coming. All right. 
You know, the people back then, they kind of lived in a constant feel and a constant sense that Jesus was coming soon. But we can get kind of, oh, he's not coming soon. We can get a little distracted. We cannot think about it that way. But the truth of the matter is, is Jesus is coming soon. So we've got to get ready. You know, the first person he uses is Noah. Noah. 120 years he built an ark. Could you imagine doing anything for 120 years? It's hard to believe. So Jesus, when you come in, when you come in, he could have focused on all of that. But instead he focused on, I got to be ready. So when he does come, I'm ready. Noah was an incredible example of getting ready. Second Peter 2, 5 says, God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people. But he protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. He protected him because he got ready. Verse 27, in contrast, we read about Lot. We read about Lot. You know, you think about Lot and you go, wow, Lot, you know, he's, he had some stuff going on. But he also, he did some crazy stuff. Lot was crazy. He, he had a lot of issues, right? Maybe that's why his name was Lot, because he had a lot of issues. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but it sounded good. Amen? Verse 28 and 29. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. You know, Lot had a lot of issues. I would say he was guilty of a lot of sins. It's sins of omission for sure. And sins of commission. But the Bible says in 2 Peter, um, I think it's chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, a righteous man who was, he was a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Sometimes we can be like that. We can be in a situation, we see things all around us, we're tormented by it. Yet we find ourselves staying in that situation over and over and over again. Lot needed to be focusing on getting ready. And then he uses this guy on the roof. You know, this guy on the roof could be any one of us, right? It's interesting. He, probably Jesus was talking. He said, oh, see that guy over there on the roof right there. Right there, that guy. In verse 31, he says, On that day, no one who was on the roof of his house with his goods outside should go down and get them. Likewise, and I'll, I'll get to that next part. But the guy on the roof, he basically says, don't go down and get the things out of the house. And this really deals with the reluctance to part with worldly treasures which induce us to stay in situations where we're being buried alive by the lifestyle. Right. Oh, I got to have this. I got to have this. I got to have this house. I got to have this neighborhood. I got to do this. I got to be. And you will do all kinds of things to get in that neighborhood, to get in that house, to get in that school district, to the point where you bury yourself spiritually. The reality is our life is a burning house. If you keep going back 
to your material possessions, you will be burned and buried in its ruins. You know, one of our friends in the church in New Jersey, their house just completely burned down. Completely burned down. Fortunately, they were out of town. But what he realized in this is, you know what? It's all going to burn. It really isn't that important. The thing he missed was his dog and his pictures. Everything else. Can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. You heard the story of the guy who, uh, he had all these gold bars that he loved. He had all these gold bars. He said, I'm going to take these to heaven with me. So he's carrying this bag of gold bars. And when he got to the pearly gates, supposing there are some pearly gates, right? He opened up his bag and he said, what's in that bag? He pulled up in the bag. And they go, oh, you got, you got pavement. Awesome. You brought pavement. You see, in heaven, everything is going to be amazing. It's going to be incredible. But sometimes we try to make our heaven here on earth. And it will never work and it was never meant to be that way. We don't want to be the guy on the roof who tries to go back to his house and grab something before he makes a decision to follow Jesus. Amen? The guy in the field. Again, the same principle. He shouldn't go back for anything. Luke 9, 62. Anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the fourth guy. Anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. The goal of a disciple, not just to become a disciple, but to die a disciple. But to die a disciple, to obey Jesus until the end. And then I love how Luke drills down on this issue. And he says in verse 32, three words. Remember Lot's wife. Now I want to encourage you before I get into this. You get in a bump with your spouse, brothers. Don't say, hey, remember Lot's wife. Hey, remember Lot's wife. That ain't going to fly for you, is it? That ain't going to go so well. I know you'll be sleeping on the couch, okay? Don't do that. And hold me accountable not to do it. Amen? Amen. <laughs> what should we remember about Lot's wife? Three things I want you to just quickly jot down. Place, people, and procrastination. Where she chose to live with her husband was not a good area. They pitched their tent towards Sodom. It was a depraved area. We even know that, that Lot was distressed by what was going on all around him. And yet he didn't do really anything about it. Neither did she. And the truth of the matter is, they were not in a good place. Where are you today? What place are you in spiritually? How are you doing? Really? Yeah, I know you're at church. And I know that everything seems to be going well. And I know that the church here is an incredible reputation. And has... For years, not just in the ACR, but literally around the world. It's an incredible church. Literally, it's an incredible church. 
But you can go to church every Sunday. You can honor God with your lips and still have your heart far from Him. And we got to make sure that we, our heart is in a good place. That our heart is in a good place. I know transition's hard. I know it is. I know, you know, we're, we're all going to be faced with the same challenge, giving our hearts to one another. Where's your heart? We got to be in a good place in our heart. Amen? Amen. You know, people, you know, the Bible says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. You hang around the wrong people and you will be in a very difficult situation. I've seen this in my own life. I've seen it, you know, in my kids' life. I've seen it in disciples' lives. I've seen it so many times. It is a fact. It's not just a great scripture. It is true. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Ten out of ten times. You may not feel it. You may not think it. But slowly, your character is ebbing away. And it's dissolving before your very eyes. And you begin to be like the people around you when you don't take strong spiritual stands. She did not take strong spiritual stands. She didn't even listen to the people in her life who were trying to help her. You know, she had Lot who at one point was striving to be super righteous. Something happened in that marriage. She had Lot who at some, you know, in Genesis 19, the Bible says he sat at the gate. He was an important person. And 2 Peter says he was a righteous guy. She also had Abraham, the father of our faith, praying for her. Praying for them. That's what they had. They had people in their life who were trying to help them. People who were praying for them. And God answered Abraham's prayer and sent two angels to pull them out of the situation. She and he had all the right people in their life. They had all the right situations, the right circumstances. But you can have the right people in your life. Still not listen to them. You can have the right people and still not listen to them. And you can end up going the wrong way. And be caught unprepared to meet God. Just because you grow up in the church doesn't mean you're guaranteed a spot in heaven. You know, oh, my parents are Christians. Doesn't mean you are. If you have not repented and been baptized, you are not a Christian. Period. There's no other way around it. And we got to realize we have to make our own spiritual decision. You have to come up with your own desire to follow Jesus. You can't just rely on the people around you just because they are. You have to make your own spiritual decisions. Look, we got to remember Lot's wife. Procrastination. The angels had to, in, in, in Genesis 19, we find out the angels had to take her and Lot by the hand and drag them out. Because they kept procrastinating. Well, uh, can we go to this city? Uh, he's like, give me your hand. And he dragged them out. Right. Too many of us procrastinate. Sadly, too many of us don't want to think about what happens after we die. Yet if you die without Christ, it's game over. It's game over. You know, there's a young man in our church back in Long Beach when we were uh, serving the ministry there. And he came to church regularly, grew up in the church. And at some point he just decided, I don't really want to follow Jesus. One night, I got a phone call. I went over to his family's house. 
and I walked into his house and it was his mother, her father, and all of his worldly friends that he had spent time with. And she was weeping and she was wailing. And she was crying louder than I'd ever heard anyone cry. And she was telling the friends, he wasn't ready. He wasn't ready. He wasn't ready. And she was weeping and crying. And all we could do was just sit there and cry with her. It was the saddest experience. One of the saddest experiences I've ever had. Because here's a person that could have been so much different. They grew up in the church. They saw the disciples. They had the right people in their life. But they kept procrastinating and he was out with his friends and someone said hey I want your wallet and he said no you're not getting my wallet and they shot him and killed him instantly we think we can just keep procrastinating oh I'll do it later I'll do it this time I'll do it this no it doesn't work like that it doesn't work like that you and I are not promised tomorrow None of us are promised tomorrow. And we will all stand before God on Judgment Day. Lot's wife was a story of almost saved. Almost. The angels took her by the hand and they said, do not look back. What did she do? She looked back. The very thing she was told not to do. You know, when I was uh, seven years old, my sister, I was five, my sister was seven. We were taking a family vacation to California. And uh, my dad was like, hey, I want everyone to stay in the back of the truck. We're going to take a picture with this cactus across the highway. And so I stayed in the truck. My sister did not listen. She jumped out, got hit by a car at 55 miles an hour. It was like, wow, she did not listen. She wouldn't listen. Now, she ended up living, and she's still alive today. But she's a 49-year-old woman with a 7-year-old mind. Her brain never developed beyond that. See, we think, oh, we don't have to really obey. We don't have to obey our parents. We don't have to keep obeying our boss. We don't have to keep doing... Hey, look, if you do not, there are consequences. There's consequences. Lot's wife procrastinated. So now, when you say, hey, remember Lot's wife, now you know what we're talking about. It's not a bad thing to say to one another, right? You see a brother in sin, a sister in sin, hey, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. R-L-W. R-L-W. RLW. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Remember Lot's wife. You know, these are things we got to consider because the truth is. We do got to remember. Amen? And then uh, Luke 17, 33. We need to stop trying to keep our old life. We got to be willing to lose our life so that we can gain eternal life. Amen? And then he used the story of two people in bed. One was taken and one was left. Hey, look, we don't know. It could be happening when you're sleeping. You don't know when Jesus is going to come. 
Just get ready for Jesus. It can happen in your sleep. Again, no one's promised tomorrow. And then he uses the seventh one. Two women grinding grain together. One taken and one left. In the midst of day-to-day life. It can happen to you while you're at the customer service desk getting kicked off. Because they don't want to return something, you know? It can happen to you while you're on the ship. If you're, you know, in the Navy. Or whatever branch gets you on the ship. Amen? (laughs) You can be driving to work. So whenever I see a car swerving, I'm like, oh, did Jesus come? What happened? I'm still here? That guy's gone. What happened? You could be grocery shopping. You could be mowing your yard. You could be having a meal together. All of a sudden, wow, they're gone. I'm here. What's happening? What's the call to action? Be ready. Be ready to follow Jesus. Verse 37, where, Lord, they asked, where's all this going to go down? He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Guys, don't be caught dead in your sin. Don't be caught dead in your sin. The vultures tend to gather and pick at your life until you're nothing left but a shell. If you've got things in your life you need to repent of, you need to repent. You've got to repent. You know, when we first came visiting here, my wife and I had this bump. And, and we, you know, we, we have a pretty good marriage. I think it's pretty good. But, but we came visiting here to look at a house a couple months, or a few weeks ago, I guess. And we got in this bump. And literally, our plan is we're going to pray. It's going to be this awesome spiritual experience. We're going to drive. We're going to pray. We wouldn't even talk to each other for hours in the car. I'm such a sinful dude. I know I'm sinful. I gotta be humble. You know, I don't have Lot's wife. I have an amazing wife, okay? I have an amazing wife. But sometimes I can be Lot. You know what I'm saying? And I can have a lot of issues myself. And and, and I'm just grateful. God has given me an incredible wife. You know, women, you help your husband get to heaven. That was one of my top criteria when choosing a wife. Can she help me get to heaven? Because Lot's wife wasn't very helpful to Lot, was she? We all have an important role in each other's lives. You know, 1 Timothy 2.4. Jesus wants all men to be saved. Isn't that awesome? He wants all men to be saved. But I will also tell you that Jesus, the man of love, spoke about hell Referenced it in some way 40 times more than anyone else in the Bible. Wow. Jesus is the man of love. But he expects you to get ready. He expects you to get ready. Because even though he doesn't want anyone to be in hell, he will send you there. If you somehow think, I got this. See, the Son of Man is coming back. Ready or not, here he comes, right? The British ships came back to Yorktown one week after the warship was over. I mean, after the, after the war was over. It was too late. Cornwallis was surprised with the 29 French warships arrived. 17,000 soldiers descended on Yorktown. By that time, it was too late. My friend's son, my friend's, you know, their, their son, I mean, they, they, he waited too long 
to make a decision to follow Christ. And she cried, he wasn't ready, he wasn't ready, he wasn't ready. It was too late. Jesus is coming. And we got to get ready. Let's get ready to see Jesus. Amen. Amen.